You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful Sunday, extremely windy day. So, Don, it is March 1st. We're yes. going to show, show will be aired on the 2nd. And I am astonished at all of the changes we've had in the last couple of weeks. It's been raining. <laughs> it's been sunning. It's been windy. It's been still. And the last couple of, of nights, there have been messages this in the morning saying, frost warning freeze, freeze warning, freeze warning. Well, until 8 a.m and i'm just going what is going on here the fact that you were able to say it's a bright beautiful sunny day in the sacramento valley or whatever approximation of that you did has been unusual because the last several days have been dreary and extremely cold and rainy and pretty miserable here actually it's 43 degrees right now as we prepare the show for broadcast on march 2nd and it is 60 percent humidity rapidly dropping with wind coming out of the north northwest at 20 miles an hour with significant gusts in there it was very cold this morning we did have a frost there was a freeze warning in effect this morning and there is a freeze warning in effect tomorrow as well freeze warning for many parts of the sacramento valley it is expected to drop to a low of 31 degrees the morning of the show so that will have already happened and then it will be 57 degrees areas of frost and sunny on thursday thursday night partly cloudy and patchy frost 34 degrees so visible frost but not particularly any damage friday areas of frost 59 degrees. First time I think we've seen 59 in uh, several days. Friday night will be mostly cloudy. We have another storm coming in, another cold storm coming in. These have been cold storms the last several days. Saturday is only going to be 54 degrees with a 50% chance of showers here in the Davis area. Saturday night showers are likely, so it's only going to drop to about 40 degrees. Sunday showers are likely. The high is only going to be 52 degrees. This nursery owner is going to start crying any moment here <laughs> Sunday night chance of showers mostly cloudy dropping down to 36 Monday chance of showers partly sunny 53 Monday night chance of showers mostly cloudy 38 etc rain on the horizon I do want to mention now so it's March 1 there's a couple of meteorologists that I follow who post the results from various climate models and two of those mo there are several of these enormous models out there that run countless numbers of uh, of uh, probabilities as i guess would be the best way to put it of possible outcomes for storms and things that are coming our way two of them looking at ocean temperatures jet stream pattern and the number of storms that are developing out there are suggesting high possibility i won't say probability but possibility atmospheric atmospheric river situation setting up for about the middle of march significant number of warm wet storms in the middle of march that sounds cool but it could be an epic disaster for the sacramento valley when this happened in 1995 we were open for business caused major flooding around the entire sacramento region it hit a significant snowpack sound familiar 
warm storms hitting a significant snowpack led to amazing amounts of water coming down very rapidly. Flood control managers, I'm guessing in Sacramento, are sitting at their desks trying to figure out exactly what to do in terms of releasing water from the reservoirs now or later, and they're guessing against you know future models that are two weeks out. That's the key point, a couple weeks out. So these are you know not firm predictions, and not every model is showing this. What happens is as all the meteorologists look at all the different models, they start to come up with a sort of an ensemble of those models. That's how they refer to it. We'll know in about a week better whether this atmospheric river for March is actually really setting up and going to hit the state of California with significant number of warm, wet rainstorms. If it does, it could be significant disaster for the state. It could be a significant disaster for agriculture, to put it mildly. And of course, there could be a lot of localized and significant regional flooding if that occurs. So I'm mentioning it now because I don't want people to be blindsided when this shows up. There will obviously be more information about it as we get closer. Meteorologist Daniel Swain, who I follow very closely, writes the Weather West blog, has pointed out they don't have a high probability on this yet. It's pretty far out there, but it's a possibility. So we seem to be shifting rapidly to warmer ocean temperatures. If those storms line up, we could have a whole lot of water coming in on top of a snowpack that's at 200% of average right now. So a lot of water out there, a lot of water already here, possibility of some pretty significant weather events about the middle part of the month. But there's nothing that a single person can do to prepare, is there? Sure, make sure your yard drains well. I mean, this is the key. You've had a lot of rain already and you saw where the water was standing and draining. Well, imagine more of that. So that would be the one thing. If you've had areas where there were flooding issues, I've got customers out in winters, for example, who are brand new house, new yard, drainage, grading is being done and there's a lot of water coming down. They're watching where that water is flowing. This is gonna test your local drainage, you know, at your house where the water comes out of the downspouts and so forth. Make sure that flows where it needs to flow. That would be the one thing I would say. And just be aware that this could be something with regional implications. I mean, I've got to say the farmer, the, the almond growers, are in, it's, a, it's a really you know, desperate situation for them at this point because they've had very little pollination weather. Well, the trees are in full bloom right now. The non-perel variety has been in full bloom for a week. And during that week, we've had part of one day where the bees might have been active. Having grown almonds, you know, for revenues, I can I can tell you that you watch every day of rain and temperature, and it hasn't gone well for them so far. And that's the highest value variety, the non-perel. It's sunny today, but it's very windy. If it's cold, the European honeybees don't pollinate. Uh, so they're they're looking at a world of hurt this year, and you need to be aware of that. The orchards are flooded. I've been taking pictures of water standing in them. It's draining out just fine. No harm to the trees at this point. But if it continues to flood later and warmer, that can cause some issues with root and crown rot. So there could be some implications for this. I don't want people to freak out, but just be aware that middle of the month, we've been through this. 1995, we had... 17 days of rainfall in the Sacramento area. We had eight inches of rain is my recollection in that year. And that's way more than normal. So uh, for that, for the month of March. So that could happen. And it looks like it might be setting up out there, but we can talk about more positive things. In February, we had about two, two and a half inches of rain, which is below average, but not by that much. And that puts us over 20 inches locally in Davis. And that's above average for the whole rainfall season, which goes all the way through, well, well, in terms of actual significant rainfall, it goes through April, some rain in May, some rain in June, but we've had what we theoretically need, at least in terms of rainfall already, could be more on the horizon is what we're looking at. 
With uh, KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, just head on over to kdrt.org. And after you get done listening to That's Life and Jazz After Dark and 17, <laughs> oh, 32 other great programs over there, you can give a contribution by clicking on the support button. There are a lot of new shows over there and there's some really good old ones as well. But I want to mention a brand new one by an older programmer. By older, I mean he's been with us for a while. I'm not speaking to his chronological age. Not his chronological age. He can address that. Peter Pasteur, who uh, had a great music program for a decade, brought more bands into the studio in the course of that 10-year run than I think anyone has ever seen at the KDRT studios before COVID and even uh, fairly recently a few more. You'd walk into the office over there, there'd be six musicians playing in the studio by the way folks this studio is not spacious and more of them crowding out into the hallway it was actually really great and he finally has retired that program and beginning a public affairs show called imagining yolo davis premiere show was on february 24th when he interviewed guest dirk brazil dirk has been a programmer at kdrt running um the the twang thang program which is uh, outlaw country and and similar type of music on sunday mornings he's moved that to monday evening uh dirk was also city manager and has had a lot of other interesting aspects of his professional career so peter interviewed him in his premiere episode of imagining yolo davis and that is on uh, let's see when does it run well, you can well, look at the schedule. Yeah, look at the schedule, guy. Look for Imagining YOLO, and that'll be a weekly program interviewing folks around the YOLO and Davis area who are important, significant, interesting, whatever piques Peter's interest. So that's Imagining YOLO. And the rest of the shows can be found there, uh, kdrt.org, and look at the schedule tab. And I do encourage you to do that periodically because I know this year we're going to do we're going to have a little more reshuffle as a few new shows get on and yep. things move around a little bit. So yeah, if you're keep, listening, if, keep if, up if you're, on that. If you're used to certain rebroadcast times, those are changing. And um, it, of course, you, you should know this. I had someone who contacted me about the jazz show and was wondering about finding archives. There's an RSS feed button you can click on for any show that's there, and it will download into your computer wherever you have it set for that to happen. So you might want to look that up first and figure out where it's going to go. But you can save any show that's there automatically and listen to it later at your leisure and pleasure. Okay, we got lots to talk about today. What do we have as far as um, announcements of other activities, non-KDRT activities? Um, the Raptor Center. Oh, yeah. Raptor Center they're is... Back, they're back open again? They're open again. Or at least they're open for tours. Right. Uh, Raptor Center is an important little... Um, excuse me. I'm looking at the University of Minnesota Raptor Center. <laughs> okay. So this is a global show. <laughs> okay. Um, but I, we are actually they're open, they're open for tours at the University of Minnesota Raptor Center. <laughs> uh, all right, folks. If you happen to be listening to us in, uh, in Minnesota, I'm going to go ahead and find the UC Davis one. I think they're still closed. <laughs> so sorry about that. You know what? I think I'm going to leave this in the broadcast. Usually I edit this kind of stuff out, but... Uh, the UC Davis Raptor Center, here we go, which is a California Raptor Center, which is a division of the School of Veterinary Medicine. We are currently open to public visitation, they say. Good news. So I didn't make a misannouncement, just the wrong state. But the one in California is too. We are not accepting new patients, as they call them at this time, because of the avian influenza outbreak. So do not bring birds to the California Raptor Center at this time. But they are an amazing educational resource about these phenomenal birds. My uncle 
was very involved with peregrine falconry and he was a passionate defender of the of the pr protecting the peregrine falcon and creating reserves for them and uh, so i became kind of interested in this uh, the raptor center at uc davis rehabilitates sick and injured birds of course as they've said they're not taking any new ones right now but they also have these education programs where you can go there they have off-site presentations special events their schedule is there on the website so go to crc which stands for california raptor center dot vet med ucdavis.edu and look for their schedule of events and uh, find out what you would do if you found a sick or injured raptor and so on. I mean, that can be a really important thing if you're out there and you find one that's been injured or even possibly somewhat poisoned or something. You know who to call, you'll know who to find, uh, who to contact for information, and the Raptor Center is probably your best resource in that regard. They even have a link on rescue and rehabilitation information. UC Davis Raptor Center, California Raptor Center, hosted at UC Davis. So we have a lot of messages that have come in, usually through email. And this one is Jeff, who says it's a follow-up on the gamosis issue, which we talked about in a previous show. Now, we're not going to do the whole thing. We'll do more about this a little bit later. But the one question I want to get to, just because it's, it's probably urgent for him. Mm -hmm. His question is, can I plant... Okay, first, I, I should back up. He had a royal crimson cherry tree. It got gamosis in the crotch. He took it out. All right, now his question is, can I plant another fruit species, non-stone fruit species in that location uh, that is not vulnerable to bacterial canker and be okay with it? Um, yeah, so, the, an the answer to that is, is simple, yes. Um, the but why is the stone or non-stone important? That, that particular disease attacks cherries, plums, peaches, stone fruits, members of uh, the genus Prunus, one division of the genus Prunus, and it is not going to attack a pomegranate or a fig ah. or a uh, persimmon, uh, which are totally unrelated. So, you, yes, I think you may have a very... He asked some other questions about cleaning up and whether there's contamination there and all that kind of thing. Well, there is contamination, but to quote directly from a cooperative extension publication, bacterial canker management should focus on making trees less susceptible, not eliminating or killing the pathogen. In mm. other words, you can't get rid of every bit of it and you can't treat the soil. You can't you know, cleaning your pruners and all that stuff, you'll read all that kind of thing. I used to jokingly call this the Lysol theory of, um, of disease management, that we're going to focus on stopping the spread of the spores. If you look at the disease triangle, which is, you'll be introduced to it at your very first lecture in a plant pathology course, it is that disease symptoms that you see are a function of the host, okay, the cherry tree, the pathogen, the bacterial canker, and the environment. And those three things interact to create conditions favorable for infection and then progression and symptoms of the disease. The one thing you can control most readily actually isn't the number of spores that are present. You can control the host by getting things that are resistant if it's a disease where there's a resistant host. But in the case of that disease triangle, the one thing you can almost always focus on as a home gardener or a farmer is the environment. Why does the disease spread? How can you stop it from spreading? And in the case of bacterial diseases like this, typically what you wanna do is open up the area underneath the tree, allow better airflow, allow sunlight to penetrate. So that it, again, as we say frequently here, sunlight is the enemy of 
diseases. I mean, sunlight and air movement are the enemy of diseases. So if you can create conditions less favorable for that little spore lying down there to find a way to get into the plant, that's what you should focus on because that's something you can correct pretty readily yourself. Um, spraying, treating, trying to make sure every spore isn't present, that isn't going to work uh, for home gardeners, particularly. Now, farmers may have more effective fungicides and bactericides that they would be using, but that's not typically an option for home gardeners. So making sure water drains away, watering deeply and less frequently. Any mulch that you use should be coarse, chunky material, not fine material. Don't bury the plant too deep. That's really important. Don't bury the plant too deep. Make sure that you can see the root collar. The very first root collar should be actually visible uh, so that it's up a little bit. So you don't have a case where in a wet winter or when you irrigate a lot, water stands around the crown. So water deeply every, let's say seven to 10 days in our soil for a young tree, maybe as little as every 10 to 14 days in our soil will be fine for an established tree. And that way the surface has a chance to dry out so the, so the organisms, this bacterial canker or others doesn't have a chance to keep increasing. So I would focus on the environment, but to your real simple question, the triangle, the part of the triangle that you're asking about is the host plant. Don't plant something that's susceptible, there you go. Problem solved. Pomegranate, fig, persimmon, things like that. And I would imagine, although I'd have to look it up, but I'll go ahead and toss this out there. Palm fruits, apples, pears, quince, I don't think are commonly hosts for this. I could be wrong, so I'll try to do some research on that. But uh, they're in the same family, but different genus. They're in the, the, the malus, M-A-L-U-S, in the case of the apples. Pears or pyrus, they're not prunus. So I would guess that likely moving to one of those would be an option. But the first three that I mentioned, totally unrelated, the uh, pomegranates, figs, and persimmons, I suspect you wouldn't have a problem. So well, Jeff asked about atomoya. What, what is that? What kind of tree is an atomoya? Beats me. What? I'm sorry. <laughs> A-T-E-M-O-Y-A, atomoya. That's what he's thinking of planting there. I think we stumped Don. This oh, cherimoya. It's a cherimoya. Okay. Uh, well, that's a southern. Um, those are not hardy here. So they're not in the same family. That's the good news. Um, I suspect. What is it? Uh, it's cherimoya. It's a subtropical fruit. I know it by the name cherimoya. Uh, it's a hybrid of the cherimoya and another species. It's closely related. Those are not hardy in northern California interior. Okay. So you're not going to see them around this area. That's for sure. They're definitely not related. They're in the Magnolia group. You know, they, they're oh, Anonesi. So my guess is they wouldn't be a problem, but that's a darn good question, which I would send over to the folks at the California Rare Fruit Growers. Are there bacterial canker type diseases that attack Cherimoya and its cousins, or are they going to be safe in this regard? But I don't have any personal experience with this one because uh, it wasn't introduced until after I moved out of Southern California and Cherimoya, which does grow down there, uh, totally tender here in Northern California. Pineapple sugar okay. apple is its common name, popular in Taiwan. Interesting. Anyone in the CRFG out there listening, send me a note about how easy it is to grow Atamoyas in USDA zone nine. <laughs> Well, before we get to the next question, I want to apologize to our listeners, because in February, I didn't get us through all of those beautiful pictures Don has on the February calendar, or what to do and all that other stuff. So if you're interested in seeing what you missed out on, you can always go to his website, redwoodbarn.com, and look for the calendar and look for the February thing, and there, there they'll all be. 
And it'll answer, some of, answer some of your questions of the popular game that we play at the Redwood Barn Nursery, which is, what's that tree? <laughs> what's that tree that I saw blooming? It yeah. has yellow flowers. Oh, that's probably an acacia. What's that tree that I saw blooming that has white flowers? Oh, that could be a calariana pear, kawakami pear, or plums, the fruit. Or almonds or shinamos. Almonds, of course. Yeah, almonds are blooming. What's that pink flower I see? The earliest pink flowered trees that bloom in February and are still blooming here are the what we call the flowering plum. And the red leaf plum, which has paler pink flowers, but the flowering plum, Prunus bleriana, is a beautiful tree with double light pink flowers right at the same time as the almonds. So they're in bloom now. So the, what what's the, the peach? We got peaches, don't we? Peaches are starting to bloom, and um, they're of course pink, shades of pink, and some are very showy, and some are less so. But uh, in terms of the the ornamental trees in the landscape, people are driving down the streets of Davis right now on you know Russell Boulevard, Fifth Street. The Calariana or Bradford pears are all blooming. They have that kind of funky odor but there's also pyrus kawakami which is the so-called evergreen or ornamental pear also been blooming since early january that one blooms right on through the middle of the winter reason this is important interestingly these are trees that will draw bees native bees in particular but also european honeybees on sunny days if they're out there into your garden into your orchard into your landscape early they'll bring them in ahead of time and they'll start Bees are really obsessive little little creatures. I mean, once they find a source of pollen, they will go back to that, even if it's a mile from their hive, over and over and over again. So I even I remember a conversation years ago with one of the notable bee folks at UC Davis. He was asking, what blooms before the almonds and with the almonds that we could get these farmers planting in hedgerows near their almond trees and get home gardeners planting to get bees out, native bees and you know the non-native bees out early to have them be more effective pollinators. So we did go through list of them and it included some of these flowering plums yes the flowering quince which is not a tree one of the very first things to bloom they are in full bloom right now but there have been flowers open on those on mine for four weeks and so there are things that bloom in late january through february that you all could plant in your garden to just help with the pollinators help with the beneficial insects there are some things blooming that don't have showy flowers but are really important pollen sources for things that feed on pollen the willows are blooming right now. The pussy willows have opened, so there's pollen scattering everywhere. Sorry for allergy sufferers, but they're out there. And actually, that can be an important point about uh, about what blooms when, is if you are an allergy sufferer, knowing what's in bloom can be important as well. So some of the wind-pollinated things, like, like the willows, are already beginning to bloom as well. I say wind-pollinated, so people say, well, that's not any good for pollinators. Up. What it is, if it you're eating, be. if you're eating pollen, if that's your food source. Yeah, and it's also the case that not every pollination mechanism is 100% one thing. You know, so for example, we don't even know what pollinates jujube trees. <laughs> we don't even know exactly what is it. We've seen ants doing it, much less you know things that fly in. So it, with some things that are pollinated by honeybees, uh, you'll see other things pollinating them. For things that are wind pollinated. Many things will feed on that pollen because it's an external source of tiny pollen grains. It's right out there and there are insects that feed on pollen. It's an excellent food source and you will see pollinators. I mean, I've seen bees all over corn tassels. Corn isn't pollinated by bees, but boy, they make use of it. So you need to be aware that some of these things are actually drawing beneficials, including pollinators that may not be important pollinators for that species. It's important to get pollen in your landscape. Sorry again to allergy sufferers. So we will go through the March calendar uh, next week, but not okay. this week, but you can get a preview of it. Go to redwoodbarn.com and look at the March calendar. Yeah. 
We had a great letter from Greg, who was replying to my comments about avocado pruning. And Greg is an avocado expert down there in Southern California. Do you have that one right in front of you, Lois? I do. Okay. I do. It's Greg Alder. And his website is gregalder.com, G-R-E-G-A-L-D-E-R. And his message is, you were spot on with the avocado pruning advice. I got some frost at my place in Ramona, so yeah. I wait to prune until March 1st. Hey, that's now. Yeah. Pruning an avocado. In, Ram oh. in Ramona. <laughs> in Ramona. Where's Ramona? That's uh, in San Diego County. Oh. Yeah. Wait, is, is that the place where they're having the blizzard now? Uh, they've had some amazing weather in San Diego County. I happen to follow a couple of the weather folks down there just for nostalgic purposes. And uh, it's been quite a lively year in the Southern California region, to put it mildly. Yes, blizzards in Los Angeles, incredible amount of rain in San Diego, cold temperatures by their standards. So yeah, I'd be curious if there's any injury, any further injury on your avocados since you send this note, but go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, pruning an avocado always reduces the trees flowering and fruiting the following year somewhat because avocados flower primarily on the outside of their canopies yeah. and on shoots that grow that grew the last year. But if you have to keep the trees sized down, then you must prune. Like you said, you do with your citrus every few years. I make mostly thinning cuts on my avocados. Every seasoned grower that I know does the same. The only difference is that it's usually best to prune avocados every single year, as early as possible each spring, in order to keep fruit production as consistent as possible. Uh -huh. After this series of storms passes and February closes out, it's avocado pruning season for me thank you for all your great shows thank you greg we appreciate the input because avocados aren't really a thing here except for the handful of varieties that can make it through our winters um, and they can get big i do know people who have them but what makes this relevant is that in our area we're generally suggesting that people plant them fairly close to their house or under an overhang or in a sheltered location. One of the most successful Mexico avocados that I know in Davis is against a west facing wall, trained essentially as a hedge under an overhang, which gives it you know cold protection. Now Mexico is a pretty hardy variety, but that way she this grower knows that she's going to get it protected and won't have significant frost injury. Well, you have to prune that. I mean, there's no getting around it. You have to prune it to keep it in that size and shape. So I would say if I were just just ratcheting his advice up for the Northern California climate, I would just push the pruning to mid-March or the first part of April after frost has passed and do it primarily for size control. Uh, that brings us to one that I didn't send over to you, Lois, but I do have to mention this one. A customer who came in who's very concerned about her avocado tree. And we were talking about it and, and, and she said, well, can I bring it in? And I thought, oh, okay, uh, that's rather different than I was thinking the conversation was going. So she did. And she, was, she brought in avocado. She had grown from a pit indoors and it was not mm. looking great. And she asked a whole lot of questions about it. That's not a way to grow an avocado tree in general for avocados. Um, first of all, there are pollinizers planted, that is to say other varieties planted amongst the Haas avocados in most orchards. So you probably, high probability you have a hybrid, not 100%, but a probability. So it may or may not be good quality fruit when it eventually fruits. And, that eventually, and if it is a Haas, you'd need another fruit tree anyway, wouldn't you? Oh, you wouldn't necessarily self they're they're adequately self-fruitful for home gardeners but Haas is completely tender i don't i think it's a i think it's a disservice to anybody in usda zone 9 any nursery in usda zone 9 to be selling Haas avocados because any normally cold winter will injure them here and an unusually cold winter such as we've just gone through where we had some significant cold snaps 
will kill them back. And then they're always essentially recovering from that. I actually don't know anyone who has grown Haas avocado in our area and gotten fruit off of it because they freeze back. They're always in the regrowth period. Then the next freeze comes along a couple of years later. They're basically always leafing and never fruiting. The other thing is it takes several years here for avocados to start producing. The, the standard answer I give is three to eight years focus on the eight. So that's a long time to wait, especially when you add a year or two to that equation for growing it from a pit. Growing an avocado from the seed, you're growing a Haas avocado, no question. That's what you got it from. That's pretty much all that's in the market unless you've carefully bought one of the other varieties you sometimes see there. And it can be a fun project. Uh, great to show kids how things sprout and grow. You can do it right there in water. You know, it's easy enough to sprout it in water, plant it in a pot, grow it in your house. They're very sensitive to salts. They're very sensitive to low temperatures and all kinds of other things can cause the leaves to burn. That's my guess is what was happening with her tree. And so putting it outside in a sheltered location might be easier in terms of watering it correctly and all that kind of stuff, but it won't be hardy outside. So it's just a fun house plant, grow it for a couple of years, dispose of it. In our area, if you want an avocado tree, you should buy a Mexican type avocado and Haas is a Guatemalan avocado. There's three big categories, Mexican, Guatemalan, and West Indies, and those are decreasingly hardy as you go. So Mexican avocados, we can grow in the valley. There's four or five varieties. Mexicola and Stewart are the two very best for this area, in my opinion. Um, Guatemalan avocados, you got to be in Southern California coastal zone or Southern California or a coastal zone up further into the state, but they're very frost tender. And the West Indies types are completely frost tender. Those are the ones you see in Hawaii, Florida, places like mm. that. So focus on the Mexican types, enjoy it. it Take several years to fruit, but when they do, it's great. This customer that I'm aware of gets 150 to 300 avocados every, you know, every other year. She likes to joke from her avocado tree. They have a strong propensity for alternate bearing. And she also likes to joke that she gets about half of those and the squirrels and rats get the other half. I will say this from growing up in La Jolla, everything likes to eat avocados. If they're on the yeah, ground. Well, they're so good. If they're on know. the ground, skunks like them. If they're in the tree, possums will climb up to them. If they're way up in the tree, squirrels will get at them. I mean, they're rich. They're a high source of, of you know, good source of fat. And they're really good for all of us, including your furry friends outside. So they can be very challenging to get a lot of them into the house. But she figures about 50% rate is pretty good. Anyway, thanks for the note, Greg. We always appreciate it. And again, I want to refer you to his website for great information on avocados, gregalder.com. Well, we have another question here. Kathy from Davis asks, what is this? Is it eating my rose bush? If so, how do I get rid of it? If not, will it eat other plants nearby? And sends lovely pictures. There is this thing about <laughs> the size of your, the tip of your little finger. Yeah. Um, and it is, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Don, you should put one of these in, in, in the picture on our, our, on our archives. It's, it's, white it's and it's white underneath it looks like it looks like somebody took a q-tip and crossed it with oh i don't know a shield <laughs> there you have your highly technical entomological description of cottony cushion scale a q-tip crossed with a shield it is or white covered it covered partially with yeah a it, look, it has what looks like a, a shield over it it's white with sort of ridges on the back and it looks like a giant mealy bug to a lot of people because it has a similar effect on the plant cottony cushion scale was introduced into california in the mid 20th century and it immediately attacked meyer lemons that's probably what it came in on which were a commercial crop in california at that time it did a lot of damage because it had no natural predators so it increased very very rapidly and it was one of the first examples 
I can't remember exactly when this uh, the biological control was introduced. They went and found a small ladybird beetle that looks nothing like the ladybug ladybird beetle that you're familiar with. It's not like the red red one with black spots. It's much smaller, which is host specific. It feeds exclusively, as far as I know, on cottony cushion scale. And they released that around the state and it does a very good job. It immediately did a very good job of controlling them in the lemon orchards and has spread with the cottony cushion scale to other parts of the state. So most populations of cottony cushion scale that you look at, if you look at closely at a bunch of them together on a plant, a citrus plant in particular, you'll find a bunch of them have holes in them and they have been killed by this little ladybird beetle. So your problem is solving itself out in the orchard. It's mostly citrus, but I have seen them. It's not completely host specific. I've seen them on Hardenbergia, the happy wanderer lilac vine. I've seen them on Pittosporum. I have seen them on rose bushes. Oftentimes they're just on other unrelated plants that are near the major infested plant. So one thing to do if you do find one or two here or there is look around on nearby evergreens in particular and see if you find just standing back, looking at areas of what look like white, moldy stuff and then get closer you'll see these individual scale insects in there and the crawler stage is the one that moves it's smaller and looks rather different it can actually crawl not real fast but it is the source one source of spread of cottony cushion scale the other source of spread is that argentine ants those efficient little buggers in your garden will carry them from plant to plant as they do with scale and aphids of all types or most types. So they can cause the infestation to move more rapidly than it would on its own. So it looks like the, so the plant is like a couple of years old. It's still in a pot and it has three, what do you call them? Stems, stalks, canes, canes what do you call canes. them? Yeah, on a rose, we call them canes, yeah. All right. And and the, the center cane, which is slightly taller than the other two, is covered with this stuff. The stake holding it up, which is tied to that centered cane, is also covered with this stuff. The other two uh, canes don't seem to be to have any of them on there. So I'm assuming that this is not healthy for the plant. And so the next question is, uh, should I just cut out that center cane completely carefully and get rid of it? You or, can do that. Yes. Mechanical, or is there some other way to handle this? Sure. Mechanical control is one of the most effective methods of controlling all kinds of scale. They tend to be clustered in one area because they tend not to travel far and they do tend to start in places where they can harbor safely, like in the area between the cane and the stake. So removing the stake would probably make a big difference in that environmental aspect of what caused them to increase there. Uh, all scale are pretty easily knocked off the plant with either rubbing, you know, take them off mechanically, Ew. or a very strong blast of water, like a jet nozzle on your hose. Well, you watch them just blast away and they can't get up when you do that. You knock them off, they're done, that's that. Or if you really are serious about it or have a citrus tree or something like that, a pressure washer does work. And whenever I say that, people always look a little startled. Like, won't that take all the leaves off? Well, no, but even if it could, you control the throttle. So you could make sure that doesn't happen anyway. But yes, you can blast them off with water and you can watch with great satisfaction as they just play away and fly off, you know, obliterated into the nearby landscape, where as I say, they can't get up and they will die. 
Um, but look nearby because they probably didn't come on the rose bush. They probably came from a nearby plant and then were just sort of either crawled up to that point or were brought up to that point by an ant and then they multiplied there. So they've been there for a while and they just increased fairly recently. Printing them out is really simple. When you find any scale, like the lacanium scale that we get on apricots, those little round bumps, there are almost always a whole bunch of them on one branch. Well, the simple answer there is prune out that one branch if you can. Throw them away, you know, get rid of them, don't leave them lying around, just put them in the trash and then you've basically solved the problem. But monitor, because they're probably, in the case of cottony cushion scale, on a nearby pittosporum or someone's citrus tree on the other side of the fence or something. So just keep an eye out for them, even on the same plant. If it's all in one place on the rose bush, and I've only seen them on roses a few times in very limited numbers, uh, I think you can easily control them on a rose bush just by pruning out that cane and disposing of it. That And then just watch for any more that might show up. And again, we do have a natural predator that's generally keeping this one in check. And in fact, natural predators generally do keep scale in check most of the time. Every now and then, uh, they'll get out of control, if you will, on one branch or one area or one plant. And the symptom a lot of people see first is sticky stuff below, just as with aphids. They're closely related to aphids and mealybugs. So they're sucking the sap of the plant and dripping essentially sugar water. So sticky stuff below them. Shiny leaf is sometimes the first thing people notice. They touch it with their thumb. It's kind of tacky. It's a sugar solution. Black mold will often grow on that sugar solution. So sometimes the first thing people see on citrus or pittosporum or other type plants like with a, a darker leaf is this black mold growing on the surface of either the leaves or the fruit. That tells me that somewhere on that plant, higher up obviously, or on a plant that's overhanging that plant higher up, there's either an aphid or a scale infestation. And this is one type of scale. The simplest first thing to do is blast them off with water or prune them out. There are insecticides that will kill them, but they're hard to get at. And typically what home gardeners will use with a really chronic scale infestation is oil, a light oil applied when the weather is mild, not when it's real hot. And you can smother a lot of them that way. But in most cases, I have found that just blasting them off repeatedly until you aren't in, and keep monitoring and re doing that repeatedly until you just don't see anymore will usually take care of them birds will eat them by the way you know this is like an aphid so you can guess with the size of the thing you saw in that picture what kind of i was going to say songbirds but i don't mean songbirds do i what, what kind yeah, of birds you do. Yeah, you sure, do. what kind of birds would come in and eat a bug that's the size, size of your little fingernail um sure there's some that would make great meal of that and so if they're out and exposed like on the like like one on the stem now it's probably going to be gone from somebody's snack, but a whole bunch of them crowded in a sheltered spot. That would be why you saw so many of them between the, the cane and the stake mm -hmm. is that would have protected them from predation. I've, I have lived here 25 years. Mm -hmm. I've never seen these things before. I am pretty sure they came on, they came in with that pot with the roses. It could. It's not common in the nursery trade. They're not a huge issue for us, but they are common on certain things like citrus trees yeah. and others. And also yeah. ants will carry them around. So that's the other thing. I will go but, and check and see yeah. what else is out there. Now that you know what it looks like, it doesn't, when I tell people it's an insect, they often look at me a little skeptical. <laughs> scale well, don't look like an insect. Like they it. Scale look like something from outer space landed on your, on your plant. Uh, and when you see the crawler stage, that looks different, but you can actually sometimes see them moving. Don't freak out. That's just that's just the young ones. Um, this crawler stage is pretty vulnerable to insecticides, such as the light oils or even neem might work pretty well on them. But honestly, one of the safest things you can use in your garden, how many times
times a year do we say this? Spray it off with water. What matters is the force of the water behind it in the case of certain pests. In the case of scale, which is stuck on there pretty well, yeah, you need a good strong blast of water. I had a problem with the soft brown scale, which is one of the more difficult ones to eradicate on a lemon tree. So I borrowed my son's pressure washer, went over that for about 10 minutes up and down. I was, by the way, only about five or six inches from the plant. And I wasn't going full throttle, but pretty darn close to it. It wasn't stripping leaves off. It wasn't doing any injury to the plant. With a thick leaf like that and a good attachment to the stem, there was no problem. I went over the whole thing until I couldn't see any more scale. And then I, a month later, I made a note on my calendar. A month later, I went back and I found a very small number of them. So I did it again. Never saw scale on that tree again. So at, from that point, natural predators were taking care of the problem uh, but i knocked the population down which is what we're suggesting you do when you blast things off with water whether it's aphids scale mealy bugs white flies you're you're suppressing the population to give the natural predators a chance to increase their population and bring everything back into balance and balance is what it's all about and these are really easy to see i yeah. mean are shocking white they are yes. just so yeah yeah, they're easy to see, but they sure don't look like anything from this planet. <laughs> no, they sure don't. They sure don't. Okay. Okay. So we have a couple of more questions. Uh, one is from Kevin in Oakley, California, and says, "Are you selling any Formosa flame trees, <laughs> Colvertaria elegans, at your nursery this year? I tried to start some seeds last year, but all of them failed, and I really want that tree." Yeah, so this is this is a question that's sort of business related, but I have to mention this one because we talk about Colverteria elegans, the beautiful Formosan flame tree, which has these beautiful pods. I have one, so I carefully save the pods when they come down. The thing about them is those pods don't ripen until almost mm -hmm. December, and then they fall and it's cold, and I don't think that most of the seed has a chance to fully mature. I don't so think we, it's viable. I, it is, have, but not... Have, Let's one just say, at the meeting house and never have had anything sprout up. And I'm told by people who've worked in the Arboretum that you'll see an occasional seedling under the trees. We have saved the seed and, and started it and gotten about a 3% or 4% germination. So that's pretty good. That just tells me if I want some to sell, all I have to do is start, you know, 200 seeds. And we'll get a few to sell. Good news. We're starting some. We'll see how it goes. Send a note to redwoodbarn at gmail.com and ask to be put on the waiting list for Colverteria <laughs> elegans. One of the problems is that there's two other Colverterias out there, Bipernata and Paniculata, both of which I consider moderately to highly invasive in that order. Bipernata does reseed and Paniculata reseeds like crazy. I would not, I think it's a a disservice. I think it's unethical to sell Colverteria paniculata because of the related pest problem it gets, the box elder bug, and the fact that it is clearly has the potential to be invasive. Bipanata, I think, is in that same range, although it hasn't been as bad, but the elegans doesn't do that. Well, now we know why. It doesn't do that because it barely ch gets a chance to reseed here in the valley. If you look it up, you'll find it's considered invasive in southern Florida. And I'm sure it has the potential in Southern California if it has adequate moisture. Anyway, um, we're trying. That's the best answer I can give you. It is a beautiful tree once you get one established. All right. Now we get some information that is not on our email. And that is my husband reads the Washington Post. And every time he sees an article about plants, he shows it to me and says, you think Don would like this? And then I email it over. So well, that's one of how we got this one. And this article is called The Case for Talking to Your House Plants. Mm -hmm. And this was January 11th, if you want to go look it up. So I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences. Okay. 
Plants don't interrupt when you're talking. They don't argue or ask difficult questions. And regardless of whether they're actually listening, research has shown them to be a calming presence. It's no wonder then that so many of us talk to ours. And it goes on, it talks about um, asking people if they talk to their plants and like over half of them said yes and all this thing. And then it talked about research about whether or not talking to plants makes a difference to the plant. Now we know but, it makes a difference to the human. Right. You definite, definite proven psychological benefits to having plants. And if talking to them is part of that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there's, they were referencing this article. Um, it's, it's an interesting read, but the, but the real result that I got from it is plants respond to vibrations. In the, in the environment, which can cause plants to grow differently or and or become more resistant to falling over. Now, we know this because you and I have talked before about a young tree, mm -hmm. and if it's out in outside where the wind can blow it around, then the act of, of moving back and forth, that vibration will strengthen the tree trunk. Yeah. And apparently it's the same with house plants, that yeah, so vibrating it, them makes them stronger. Well, vibrating them causes them to release ethylene gas, which thickens the trunk. It's the same thing if you can't move your tomato seedlings outside because the weather has not been conducive, like some of our recent days where we didn't get above 45 degrees, vibration will accomplish the same thing. And there's ways to do that. So uh, whenever someone presents to you something that is, uh, let's say it's in the popular media and they're talking about this recommendation or something they read, I, you could ask two questions. One, is it evidence-based? Has there been actual research science on the subject published in, you know, let's say double-blind studies published in peer-reviewed journals, that kind of research? And in the case of horticulture, I have to say we don't have an industry where there's all that organized research done in a systematic way on particular topics. It seems it's rather more random than that. It's not like agriculture where you have whole institutes devoted to researching citrus issues, for example. Uh, we do have horticultural institutes, but it doesn't seem like anybody takes on this kind of thing with that kind of gravity. And the other question then, if you don't have evidence, does it make sense from a physiological or a soil science standpoint? You know, if someone tells you to put a cup of Epsom salts under your tomato plant, does that make sense from a soil science standpoint? I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase the answer no. is no. <laughs> but uh, if they say a teaspoon or a tablespoon, okay, well, it provides some magnesium and some sulfur. And those are both elements that plants do use. That begs the question of whether they need you to do that, but at least there's a, a soil science basis to it. So listening to the whole conversation about whether you should talk to your plants or back in the 70s, the big deal was playing music for your plants and whether that would make any difference. At least a couple of times over the years, I've helped elementary or junior high school kids do science fair projects where they decided to take on that topic and see how the plants grew with different kinds of music and so forth. There is a physiological response that could be valid. I'm not saying that the hypothesis has been proven, so that's your science fair project. <laughs> but I would say that if I were doing this, I would either compare heavy metal to jazz and classical and see which one gives the better response in terms of thickening, thickening the stems and making sturdier seedlings. And I'd say heavy metal is likely to do it just because of the vibrations. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, there you go. And of course, if you played, you know, some certain classical pieces, you'd have the heavy bass and drums and all that kind of thing as well. I'm not suggesting this to uh, someone whose parents haven't approved it. <laughs> <laughs> certain kinds of music. 
there's a couple of shows on KDRT you could check out <laughs> that would give you exactly what you need. And it, yeah, the key would be that vibration. It causes the plant to release ethylene gas, which ethylene is an actual hormone, plant hormone, that in, interacts with other hormones. And the reason you see a redwood tree out in the open having more taper to the trunk than a redwood tree in a group with others is because of that movement, because of the air movement, while vibration does the same thing. So there you go. There's your scientific basis for talking to plants. Okay, well, there's one more, and okay. that is not the vibration physiology argument, but it's the fact that if you're actually going and talking to a plant, you're probably noticing it. You, maybe you're going to dust it more or, or be a, attuned to what it needs. And so talking to them can make the human act nicer. There is no question about the psychological benefits of plants and the health benefits of plants. I mean, that's been proven by actual studies. And so this oh, yeah. is a part of that. And anybody who's selling houseplants knows that there's a whole subset of the houseplant buying public that adopt them, name them, interact with them on a level that we probably mostly apply to cats and dogs while they're doing the same thing with plants. And so, yes, if you're standing there talking to it and having a good conversation with it, don't feel guilty at all. You are looking closely at that plant, looking for mealybugs and white flies and spider mites and yellowing leaves, and you're paying it more attention. So I don't have any evidentiary basis for that, but I think I can observe that in the real world. And the other thing is if you are talking to your, if you're home alone and you have plants as companions and you talk to them, it's sort of like um, talking to yourself as far as um, working things out. You know how, how you, get a, you get an idea or a thought and then, and then you talk it out with someone? Well, if you don't have someone else to talk it out with, hey, there's that plant. And they don't talk back. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see what else we got. Um, I remember that a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Wen Chin, who came in, Wen Quinn, excuse me, who came into your nursery. And there were a couple of questions that came up in, in that conversation that I think I'd like to talk about. Yeah. Um, one is partial shade, which we've talked about many times. But the other one was gardening in small yards. So maybe we can just address that ongoingly as we as we do these shows yeah so on small yards i'll just give a couple key principles we'll talk about vegetables and fruit trees there are there are ways to grow food plants in small yards now partial shade is much more of a challenge honestly than a small yard for almost everything you can think of there's a dwarf version on the market every tomato you know peppers tomatoes peppers fruit trees there's a miniature version of peaches there's a there are the determinate tomatoes there's even these new miniature tomatoes that are even smaller than the determinate tomatoes there are uh, herb plants uh, the basil for example your regular old basil plant gets three four feet sprawls all over the place well there's a little bush basil spicy globe is the name of one of them that only gets about a foot by a foot has a great flavor and you can grow it in a container with one of those little tomatoes as an example this year we're going to be pushing this particular basil plant i'm just this will be like the only specific thing we talk about in this regard emerald towers i think is the name of it it's a very upright grower very dense barely ever flowers in a whole long growing season i never saw a flower on it and i was still harvesting into late november i grew mine in a large container but it doesn't need a very big container just something you know like the, somewhere between a five and a 15 gallon container would be great as long as you can give it plenty of water and plenty of sunshine so whatever you like to grow cucumbers there is probably 
a dwarf version or a compact version or a bush version that will fit in a small yard. I've seen extremely effective compact vegetable gardens. You want a fruit tree? There are these miniature, we used to call them genetic dwarf, they're, they're naturally miniature, miniature peaches, miniature nectarines that are great flavor. They're very, very good and they grow like a bush. And of course, in the world of citrus, there's things like kumquats and, and the satsuma mandarin, which can be kept rather small, Meyer lemons, which can be kept pretty small. So pruning can accommodate a lot of fruit trees, but some of them are naturally more compact growers. When we're talking about a small yard, um, I think the best way to approach it is to look at what your microclimate is in the various areas. If you have a big yard, you can go, oh, I want to grow this. It needs sun. I'll put it over there. It doesn't need as much sun. I'll put it over there. It has to be shaded from the from the heat. I'll put it over. Well, if you have a small yard, you don't have all those places to put things. And so maybe before you set your mind on what you want to grow, maybe it would be better to look at your yard and see what would be appropriate. So if I have a small yard and it's overshadowed by fences on two yeah. sides or the neighbor's two-story house or whatever, maybe I should look at what are the growing conditions I have available and then right. take it from there. You may have one advantage, which is that you're likely to have a microclimate that provides more frost protection. So if you if we're talking about things that are a little you know tender in this area, no, I'm not saying plant an avocado tree in your small yard, but a plant with a south or or east facing wall uh, will have added frost protection. So in, and and the buildings around you will probably provide some degree of frost protection. When I get to 27, 28 degrees, your little yard probably only gets to 33 or 34, and that can make a huge difference in what you can grow. So you may have opportunities provided by the enclosure of your of your setting shade is usually the biggest problem and there aren't that many things that like shade but one other option which can help with that and also with getting more food plants into a limited space is to go vertical so if you grow a determined an indeterminate tomato let's say you decide to plant that chef's choice orange that i tout all the time that vine grows to eight to ten feet That'll fill your whole backyard in a lot of small yards. But if you put a little cage on it, that's a six foot high cage, you can take advantage of the space just going up and it may get it up into the sunlight. So that's something to look at. I would suggest anyone who's limited for space, make a schematic of your yard, look at your exposure and know the difference between west wall and east wall in the Sacramento Valley. That makes a huge difference in what's going to perform well. Uh, north exposure, challenging. South exposure, really warm in the winter. So that's got some great opportunities for you and then watch the sun pattern but also one thing you can do aside from using what i would call miniature or naturally dwarf or intentionally hybrid dwarf plants is to go vertical and take advantage of the fence space with espaliering a fruit tree or growing a vine like a grapevine or something just being aware that that's getting into training and pruning and a different level of expertise we can certainly help with that and any good local garden center can but there are plants that'll do it for you. I mean, this is why the miniature peaches are so popular. It's just a shrub that produces really good peaches. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. You don't have to prune them at all if you don't want to. Yes, you have leaf curl. Yes, you need to thin the fruit, et cetera. But basically, you don't ever have to prune them. And so they'll fit in a small yard. I have people who just stick one on the end of their vegetable garden and grow it like a shrub at the end of the vegetable garden. So you do have choices, but you got to look at how much space you have. And, you know, you're picking and choosing things to augment your your, your diet, not trying to produce enough tomatoes to freeze for the entire summer. So pick the one variety or the two varieties that you know are successful here in the Valley. We will certainly talk more about that in the next <laughs> few weeks. And if you're limited for space, we can focus on that. I mean, we can do either smaller varieties 
or how you're going to go vertical and train it and, and get more fruit out of a small area than you could imagine it being possible. And another thing to ask before you get started on all this is why do you have a small space to garden in? Are you in a rental apartment? Are you in a, in a house where you can't make changes? Maybe if it's a rental thing, maybe you're going to want to use pots instead of planting directly in the ground. Maybe you're going to want to do other things. So okay. there's a lot to talk about, Don. Also, be a little bit radical. Use your front yard. Ah, yeah. All the time. I tell you, you know, if you've got a homeowners association, go to the mat with them. Talk to them. Tell them you're going to be growing food in your front yard and it's going to look pretty. And they can't tell you you have to have a lawn out there. By the way, there's some places where they no longer can tell you you have to have a lawn out there. And if they want it to look aesthetic, well, we can certainly help you design a very attractive little food garden in your front yard. Some of them are very attractive. If you're in a rental, by the way, I'm going to throw this one out there. Straw bale gardening it came in, it became very trendy a few years ago. And people tried it here in the Sacramento Valley and they found that it needed a lot of water you had to, because you're, you're taking a, a straw bale hay bale and uh, carving out a sort of a hole in it and putting some soil in there and planting into that and uh, running a drip line across the top and most people who did that found they had to water every single day so that was an issue but you know what when they were done that bale had just disintegrated into compost and they could rake it up scatter some grass seed their landlord was happy and they could go on their way so they didn't have to build raised planters they didn't have to turn the soil they didn't have to do anything they could create a vegetable garden on the lawn restore the lawn when they were done or whatever ground cover was there and move on. And they had had a year of vegetable garden. So while it has some drawbacks in terms of needing water, it actually worked quite well for most people who did fast, deep-rooted plants, tomatoes, squash, things like that. And they found that it worked surprisingly well. And as I say, it's easy to clean up after you're done. So we, we want to get more food gardens in front yards. That's our goal. So whatever it takes to do that, it can be aesthetic. We can talk about what are the attractive fruit trees and the attractive vegetables. And one thing I often suggest is just do a row of lavender in front of it. So it looks like a potager and it looks like you've actually planted a, a kitchen garden and then people have nothing to complain about. Maybe this year we can do or sponsor a tour of front yard gardens. A virtual tour. Either a virtual tour or a real tour. I mean, there, there are <laughs> tours of, like the Pence Garden tour is always real popular. No, we'll just do this. All right, folks, all these listeners around the world, we just want a picture of your oh, front yes. yard food garden. Yes, Davis, please. DavisGardenShow at gmail.com. Well, let's, let's, let's just shatter the need for front lawns. All right. <laughs> All right. And I will volunteer once we get all those pictures. I'll do a website with a gallery <laughs> of those photos. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll put it on my website, but we'll have a page where you can actually go and look at everybody's Good ideas. Good gardens. ideas from what other radical gardeners have done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.